0: Well, if you turn with me into your Bibles, Romans chapter 2, in our series on the gospel of God, we've uh, got to chapter 2, and uh, verse is 5, uh, verses 6 to 8. So chapter 2, and verses 6 through to 8, you'll find on page 940 in the Pew Bibles, so Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through to 8, as so we're looking at this series on Paul's letter to the Romans, really about understanding the gospel of God and how to apply that to our lives in a way that encapsulates the mercy and the grace of God. We come now to this passage that we need to understand in that context, and uh, let's pray for God's help, for the work of His Spirit. This morning would be a true life-changing morning for College Church as we look at these, these words together from... The Bible. So Romans 2, verse 6. Let's hear God's word. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is God's Word. Obviously, it's a pretty interesting few verses there, isn't it? And I've been wrestling this week with how to explain it to you. And the analogy came to my mind to compare it to C.S. Lewis's One of his famous books called The Screwtate Letters, which are letters from a senior devil to a junior devil. In some ways, these verses here seem to me to be Paul's answer to one of the primary temptations that I face and that you face and we face in the suburbs of Chicago today in the 21st century. Let me illustrate that for you then by imagining the kind of screw tape letter of the senior devil to a junior devil and C.S. Lewis kind that could be written today in the 21st century. It might go like this. My dear Wormwood, Wormwood being the junior devil that screw tape is writing to. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that you have allowed your patient, what's his word for a Christian. I note with grave displeasure that you have allowed your patients to start attending a church that teaches the Bible. As you well know, the first principle that is taught to you junior devils, at least it was when I was in charge of the Academy of Hell, is that you must take quite a different approach with those who are in so-called Christian areas of the world than with those who are not. Anyone would think that the two situations were quite the same. Of course not. You have gone about it all wrong. Somehow your patient has got it into his head, and I lay the blame for this squarely on your shoulders, that going to a church that teaches the Bible is a good thing. And what have you done about it? Nothing. Oh, I can read between the lines of your pathetic excuses and that lame attempt of an explanation you called a letter. Surely you realize that you should stop him going to church at all, if possible, You should tell him that he can listen to radio teachers or TV teachers or stay at home and watch it on the internet. All you have to do if he doubts the wisdom of this is by all means avoid that cursed analogy that the Apostle Paul used of the body. Anyone with half a brain would realize that trying to be the same body when you're not actually connected with other parts of the body is impossible. But don't let him think in concrete terms. Let him deal with vague, apparently sophisticated generalities like the universal church. Don't let him ask what that actually means or whether to be a part of the universal church he should actually be going to a local church. From what I take it from your letter, you've been trying to persuade him that God does not exist. Quite the wrong approach in a Christian-dominated area. That might work in a place where there are many atheists but where all his friends believe in some sort of God or other, he will just think the idea to be ridiculous. No, what you have to do is persuade him that going to church isn't that important, that it's less important than other very essential matters like catching up on some sleep or going to a movie or making coffee or playing or watching sport, anything really. Fortunately, humans are so geared towards avoiding trouble that you only need to suggest that something is uh, less hassle than getting in a car and driving somewhere or walking around the block, and he will leap on the alternative with enthusiasm. But of all unbelievable things, not only have you let him start going to church, you've let him start going to a church that teaches the Bible. My venom for you knows no bounds, and you can be sure you will suffer the usual consequences. How we tremble at the specter, that fearsome specter of the army of Christians with the sword in their hands. As you know, there's nothing we can do against that weapon. Even he who is above all, the junior devil, senior devil himself, could not do anything against that word when spoken to him by the master. Fortunately, there's still time. Here is what you must do. Make him think that the message of the Bible is unfair. Ask him about those who have never read it, and don't let him ask what he's going to do now he has read it. Ask him why it is that those Christians are always against things, and don't let him ask whether some of the things they are against are damaging, and it is right to be against them. Just let him focus on their apparently anti-other-people approach. In short, you want him thinking that the Bible, in the end, even the church he attends, is really unjust. That God himself is unfair. Ask him, how is it possible that salvation is by faith alone? And how is that right, fair, just, when well, there are lots of people who do good things And by all means don't let him inquire too deeply into what is good Your affectionate uncle Screwtape <laughs> I introduced then Paul's antidote to screw tape letter. See this section of Paul's letter to the Romans is a new point in his argument which really serves to underline the main theme of this larger section from chapter 1 through to the first part of chapter 3. It's important we grasp the larger picture because this section has not only been frequently under preached; people run scared of it because it talks about things like wrath and they think that that will turn people off from coming to church. But not only has it been underpreached, it's also been mispreached, or at least misunderstood in a very screw tape letter kind of way. People think that Paul is basically saying, you guys are terrible sinners, how awful you are, let me tell you over and over again how terrible you are. And this gives the impression that what Paul is implying is that God is unfair or accusatory or condemning. Well, Paul now begins to answer that by saying that God is not unfair, he is not unjust. He's actually using, Paul is using a well-known trope within his Jewish religious circles at the time, talking how those awful pagans did this, that, and the other, and aren't they terrible? And isn't that bad? And so he says, uh, God, using this sort of well-known rhetorical form of the day, gave them over, gave them over, and then Paul finishes actually his list, not with any sexual sin, but disobedience to parents. Ever notice how he finishes in chapter 1? In other words, it's a prodigal son story. They went to the husks, but then they realized God the Father was kind, and then they They came home, and Paul uses this trope from religious circles, banging on about how horrible the pagans were for doing this, that, and the other, and then he turns to the older brother in the story at the beginning of chapter 2. And by the way, BTW, he says, LOL, isn't it kind of funny? Religious people are actually in the same boat. Those guys who pass judgment using all this anti-that group and anti-the-other group rhetoric, well, they're in the same sort of situation. Oh, well, yes, may not literally do the same deeds, but the basic same issue is theirs. Oh, they're like the older brother. The younger brother physically left and went off physically away from the father. The older brother has just left emotionally and affectionately and relationally. He's present in body, but he's absent in spirit and mind and heart. It's the same thing. So we need the same Jesus, the same grace, the same love, the same mercy. I know I do. I know biblically we all do. You see, the point of this section then is not to point fingers at other people for being particularly bad and how we are fine by comparison. That's what a lot of people these days think we Christians are saying, especially with some of the moral controversies that are in contemporary culture, they think we're saying, look at those other people, aren't they awful, terrible, horrible? But actually, this section of Paul's letter to the Romans is designed to put something quite the reverse in our minds. It's designed to lay a level playing field at the foot of the cross. And its purpose here is to make us all younger, brother, older, brother, younger sister, older sister. Realize our profound need of Jesus and therefore appreciate him more in all his glory. You see, these verses then here that we've now got to are a new developments and it's applying, applying, application, the implication of the whole section and making it explicit for us. And the way to see that that's what he's doing is to notice a somewhat technical issue here. This, this, these verses are actually structured in what is known technically as a chiasm. Now, those of you who are into these kind of things may know that some people find chiasms under every bush, but I think there really is one here. Chiasm is a piece of writing that is structured like this in the form of A, B, B, A. That is, it starts with one kind of statement, then in the middle it has another kind of statement, that middle statement is repeated, and it returns at the end to a reflection of the beginning kind of statement, A, B, B, A. Now, verses 6 to 11 of chapter 2 of Romans function like that. That's why we did verse 5 on its own. Verse 4 concludes the section from chapter 1. Verse 5 is a bridge verse, and then verses 6 to 11 go together, it starts with saying that God will give to everyone according to what He has done. And then it ends by saying, so God does not show partiality. Do you see? Of course, that's basically the same idea. What Paul was doing is explaining that God is fair. He is just. He's beginning, why? Because he gives people according to what they have done. Unlike most chiasms, the main point then is not in the middle. It's the end. This is about how God is just because on the last day he will give to people according to what they have done. Now, those of us who grew up in evangelical churches will at this point think that maybe the Apostle Paul has lost his mind. I thought this was all about uh, free grace, Paul. Why are you now suddenly saying it's uh, to do with works? Well, what Paul is telling us is that real faith is evidenced by works. He doesn't say that those who seek God, as he puts it, are perfect. He doesn't say that. This is not sinless perfection. He's talking about the fruits of real faith in Jesus, which is seeking God, glory, honor, immortality, living for Him, not seeking yourself and what's best for yourself. Paul is agreeing with James, the letter in the New Testament, faith without works is dead. And we're looking then this morning at the first part of this middle section, because it explains the key distinction between those who seek glory and those who seek self. Let me put it for you like this. First self-seekers. That's the second half of the section. There's the reason why I'm doing it this way round, as I think will become apparent. This is the second half of the section. First self seekers. Paul writes, Can you see it? Those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth. But obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. Powerful, powerful words. Now, by the way, this is why expositional preaching is important for the church, for the kingdom, for Christians, for the world. If I had my choice, I would never preach on these words. I just stand up and shout and preach John 3.16 and tell nice stories from the red-letter parts of the Bible, you know. But this is Jesus' Word, isn't it? This, why? Because this is God's Word. This is, this is all the Bible. And actually, Jesus talks more about hell than any other figure in the Bible. You can look it up in a dictionary when you get home. A lot more than Paul but what we're doing when we're preaching expositionally is exposing the idea, the intention of the passage in front of us. It's not just shouting really loudly in an excited way about God in your face. It's not a certain form or style. It's, it's the Bible explained and applied, and that's why I often start my sermons with the application. We need to show that the Bible applies today and is relevant today. Here it answers this human need. Is God really fair? Is He really just? Is God actually impartial? Or is He just playing favorites? Do you see? Isn't that what people you know think? Isn't that what we wonder? Is God just playing favorites? Well, no, Paul says, because there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who are self-seeking and those who are glory-seeking. We'll look at glory-seeking in a moment as when we get to that part of the sermon. But first, self-seeking. Now, I want you to note how he defines this issue. He says, do not obey the truth. That, you see, my friends, is an echo of his previous description of faith as the obedience of faith. And so these people are people who have rejected the gospel. They've had the gospel preached that's by faith, but they won't obey that. They're rejecting that truth. That's what Paul was saying. They are self-seeking. Now that's a very difficult word to translate there in the original. Many Bibles, perhaps yours does, will have a footnote to contentious as another option. The word was used by the Greek philosopher Aristotle to mean people seeking political office with vain and selfish ambition. So it has this sense of striving for self, contending for yourself. Now you see, what this means then is that this idea that we need a new perspective on Paul to bring back works in is quite wrong. Paul is clear that if we do not obey the truth, our faith is not this obedience of faith. That is, in James's terminology in his letter, if faith is not resulting in works, then faith is not real. It's not dead. It's just a playing around. It's not action. It counts with Jesus by His Spirit. As so we prayed early in the service, that so Spirit come. It's not nothing real. It's not a real encounter with Christ. Or well, to use the story that Jesus told. Being an older brother is not better than being a younger brother. Now, this is not condemning. Paul is not intending to condemn the Christians he's writing to. He's saying, come to the feast. Celebrate with me what Jesus has done. That's what he's trying to achieve with this level playing field at the foot of the cross. You see, we all have our list of untouchables, don't we? People we think that we would never be like. Paul Ostreicher's father became a Christian from a Jewish background, and he records what he said to him. He constantly said, Ostreicher remembers, if I had grown up in a different context, I might be the persecuting Nazi. When I look inside myself, I know the persecutor could be me, and I can never face Hitler without seeing Hitler in myself. Now, that's what Paul is saying. And you see, of course, you and I know people don't want to hear about any wrath or fury. I mean, after all, who would want anyone to go to hell, right? But then you sit down over a cup of coffee at Starbucks with a friend and you're chatting with them about inviting them to church or something, and they say, "Well." They don't want anything to do with anything that has any mention of eternity, salvation through Jesus alone. And then you say to them, don't you, well, do you realize what you're saying? Do you not actually want Hitler to be punished? Are Are you really saying you don't want any justice for the wrong things done in this world? I read the news this week about a man who was in prison for 25 years on death row, and it is now discovered that the testimony against him was from someone who had lied about it. He has lost 25 years of his life. Is there no time when all this will be put right? And so we have our list of untouchable people And we accept there must be justice to such things. And Paul is saying, well, yes, but doesn't the same thing lie within all of us? Don't we see Hitler in each of us? It's a hard realization, but sometimes I think anyone who doesn't believe in original sin has not yet been a parent. You know the way it works. As a parent, your child, you're longing for them to speak their first words. And you always think that the first thing they're going to say is something like this Oh, Daddy, I love you so much. Oh, Mummy, thank you for getting up at three in the morning for four months when I was, uh, you know, screaming my head off. Thank you so much. I honor you and I value you. Aren't you wonderful, Mummy? And what is the first thing they say? No. <laughs> or perhaps, mine. Or even I want. That's what we're all like, isn't it? Unless we obey the truth of the gospel, that is also what we will all remain like. Now, my friends, that is what's on offer this morning, an alien power. That is an alien righteousness. That is a power outside of ourselves, a sovereign gift, a gift from the King of kings, A gospel, a message, the work of the Spirit that can come in and turn a little Hitler into a little saint. See, this is not about fairness or justice. Fairness is hell. That's what we all deserve. Mercy is Jesus. And so, second, glory-seeking, and I hope you can see now why I'm doing it like this. It's a fantastic phrase here. This is why. I wish this verse here, this phrase, would become the new pin-up verse on all the dormitories at Wheaton and on every fridge and every home and every house in the region. Look down with me. Isn't it fantastic? To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. What an amazing, amazing promise. Now, will you note with me, it is a gift. It is grace. He will give eternal life. Note also, it's not about being perfect. He does not say to those who are perfect, they will get it because they deserve it. No, not at all. Paul is describing what a real Christian is like not someone who's just imbibed the Christian jargon, but someone who has become a true follower of Jesus will seek this glory. Again, that's what's on offer this morning. Do you want it? Now, I'm just going to break it down so we can all see this, and the reason why I'm doing that this way is because that's my job. The difference between an expositional preacher And someone who just makes up his own stuff is like the difference, someone said to me recently, between a DJ and a karaoke. Karaoke preachers hog the microphone and sing their own thing, and the tune fades into the background. A DJ mixes and connects and is creative, but he's playing someone else's tune. My job is to play God's tune. So let's look at it, patience in well-doing. It's a perseverance concept. It's saying we keep going. No, it doesn't all say we always like it. It doesn't say we're always successful. This glory seeker is the kind of person who keeps going. They keep going to the end. They are patient. That is, they persevere. That's the idea here, persevering, keeping going, not giving up, never, never, never give up, as Churchill said. The person who is given eternal life, is the person who perseveres to the end. So a Christian is someone who remains a Christian right to the end. They persevere. They keep going. Now, young Christians, do not sneer at the steady perseverance of older Christians. As they come in on shaky legs to this building their patience and well-doing, honor such. And older Christians do not get frustrated at the sometimes wavering up and down but still steady perseverance of younger Christians. But both be patient and well-doing with each other. In other words, keep going. Patient and well-doing. Then seek for glory. Now, glory here stands for God Himself. That's the meaning of glory in the Bible. You can do your own research on it. Glory stands in the Bible for God. Glory in the Bible is God. He is the definition of glory. All His attributes, that is all that makes God, God, combined together to be His glory. So what we're seeking when we seek glory is we're seeking God Himself. See, there's Olympic glory, isn't there? You know, the Sochi Olympics are on, and you'd hear so-and-so got Olympic glory. They won. We know what glory means. It means this honor, this praise, this adulation. The person then who is given eternal life is seeking God, that glory, that honor, not only temporarily, but you notice, forever, glory and honor and immortality. That is, their eyes are set on the prize. You say, well, why should I seek the glory of another even if that other is God? Well, look at it like this. An Olympic athlete trains incredibly hard. They get up early. They watch their diet. They don't take time off to go to long movies or take long vacations. Their discipline is extreme. Well, those who get to the top have talent, of course, but the real difference at that level is not just the talent, but what you do with it. Are you willing to work harder than anyone else? Are you willing to put in the time and the energy? Are you willing to pay the price for the glory? So why do they do it? Because of the glory. Now is that glory selfish glory? I, I suppose in some instances it might be, and there may be elements of that. But have you noticed what happens at the medal ceremony? There's a flag that's raised and a national anthem that is played. And who gets the glory? The whole country. And the neighborhood where they came from, the, the little gym that before no one had heard of it, and is now on the map and everyone wants to go there. And the, and the coach who put in all those hours to train that little child is now receiving a medal. That coach is interviewed afterwards and has a whole line of people wanting to be coached by him now. And the family of the person who's receiving the medal stands up and cheers and claps and hugs themselves and the camera turns on them too and Whose is the glory? It's not a perfect illustration because any Olympic glory is tarnished with human foibles. But take that picture, magnify it infinitely, maximize it to the widest possible aperture in the imagination of your mind's eye. Take the Sochi celebrations and all that glory and infinitely increase its spectacle and take away from the self that, of course, tarnishes it even at its best. See, deep within, we know... There is one who rightly receives glory. Imagine that, that scene at a medal ceremony, and the winner is about to get onto the top of the podium to receive the medal, and at the last moment, someone from the crowd crashes in and pushes the winner out of the way, out of the way and grabs the, the gold medal and stands on the podium. Does everyone cheer? There's something wrong. <laughs> God alone rightly receives all glory, and His glory is so infinite that those converted by the power of Christ through His Spirit to seek glory and desire glory share in that glory. Peter put it like this in his letter, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Filled with glory. P- Peter. Paul then later expands on this idea here when he says in Romans 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Glorified with Him. <laughs> The Spirit shows us there's a purpose in our patient endurance, for we will be glorified with Him. Then Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with that glory that is to be revealed in us. Wow! Not worth comparing with the sufferings. I I can certainly think of some suffering. I think of the person I visited gasping for breath with an oxygen mask. I think of the person suddenly dying of cancer. I think of the victim of abuse. I think of the person raped as a child. I think of a person whose career has been blocked by jealous superiors. I think of the person who wanted to play for that sports team but got injured at just the wrong moment and their opportunity was missed. I think of the person who longs to get over some sin or other but is patiently trying but still wrestling. I think of the person who's simply tired of looking after older relatives. I think of the person who stays up at night crying in prayer for their prodigal son. I can think of a lot of suffering, and I haven't even turned on the news on the TV. But for those who seek God, glory. Here's what I want to leave you with as we conclude. Now remember, God's final judgment is according to our works, because they evidence our faith. That final judgment is therefore fair, not unjust at all. God does not show partiality, and that will be shown to be the case. And therefore, repent of self-seeking. We really must repent, for truly there is a day coming. And therefore, seek glory. Be a glorious, glory seeker, glory seeker in the only place where every Olympic medal, every Hollywood Oscar, every business award for CEO of the year is as nothing compared to that glory. Seek that glory. And if we do, College Church, if that is our aim our seeking by the Word. And as we gather together each weekend, we will continue (laughs) to give another reason for screw tape, to write a rebuking letter to Wormwood. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do ask that You would Give us such a vision, such an insight from your word of the glory that is to be revealed in us, that we will become glory seekers, that is, seeking you, God. that we would glory in our Redeemer, we pray that we would um, genuinely and truly turn away from the things that slow us down in the Christian race and come in between who you are and what we will be on that day, cast off the sin that so easily entangles. Seek you, God, and your glory and honor in immortality. I pray that that would be such a thrill for us this morning, that we would go out with that song on our lips, with that intentionality in our hearts, with fresh conviction and passion for you, Jesus, I pray. And in your name, amen.